Hi guys, welcome back to Infinite Possibilities, the podcast where we explore the lives of amazing people, their choices, challenges and opportunities. And today I have a very special guest, Jane. Hello. (laughs) Hi Jane, thank you, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Yeah, especially since Jane is in Dubai right now and she woke up at 6am and it's just my lazy 12pm, so extremely grateful as well for that. Yeah, it's okay. I'm a morning person. Oh, okay. That's pretty good. Um, Yeah. So Jane, when someone meets you for the first time, how do you sort of introduce yourself? What do you say? Uh, Well, I don't normally say much because I'm I'm a little bit self-effacing, so I don't like talking about myself. (laughs) So I usually just say, hello, I'm Jane. I don't usually say much more than that. And then if they're interested, they ask me. Yeah, okay, fair enough. (laughs) Yeah, and um, so maybe we just jump right into it because Jane has like a really interesting story and she's had like a lot of sort of different career paths. So Jane, um, I'd like to know what kind of child were you like growing up? (laughs) Um, Look, I think I was pretty obnoxious. Uh, I was excellent. Yeah, I was a little bit overweight. My mother gave me a basin cut, which wasn't very becoming. Um, and I was very clever, but not very compliant. So I think teachers found me a bit of a trial at school and, and I found school a bit of a trial. <laughs> okay. And what about um, in terms of personality? Were you very extroverted, introverted? Were you like the class clown, sporty? Uh, definitely not sporty. Um, <laughs> I've, always been, I've always been very extroverted and, and loud. Um, and I wasn't the class clown. I don't know. I think I just I just think I was a bit obnoxious and didn't really fit well into school. <laughs> you know, people say that your school days are the best days of your yeah. life. That was not my experience. It was like, I can't wait to get out of school. Yeah. And just wondering, what do you mean by like obnoxious? Like what? Like if I were to meet you when you were in primary school, high school, what would I be seeing? Oh, you know, that smart, fat kid that's got all the answers to everything. And I've always got my hand up. I've always got the answer. Yeah, I just think everyone thought I was awful. And I probably was awful. Oh, so kind of like a teacher's pet situation going on. No, 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 the teachers didn't like me either. Just like that obnoxious kid that really liked to go somewhere else. Oh, really? Because you were smart. So, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but, you know, when you're smarter than the teachers, they don't like that. It, You know, like I was a smart ass, I should oh, say. And you've yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And so when you got to around high school, did you, oh, by the way, were you born in Papua New Guinea? No, I was actually born in uh, Scotland. And oh, then wow. my parents migrated when I was two and we lived in uh, rural North Queensland and then moved around a bit when I was a kid. And then I went to boarding school for high school Ah, okay yeah that's cool so yeah I wanted to ask you about like when you were in high school like did you have some sort of like idea of what you might like as a career was there anything floating through your mind at the time oh I had so many things in my mind I always wanted to travel that was a really huge thing for me so you know I I hear explored even being a, an air hostess because I thought that was a good way to travel. Then I thought I could be a hotel manager. Then I briefly thought I could be the prime minister. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't really have any idea whatsoever. I was just keen to get out of school and get out there into life. 
Yeah, that's cool. And wondering, did your parents have any sort of like input, like, oh, hey, Jane, you should be X, you should be Y? Uh, they found me very trying because I always, all my school reports just said, Jane is very clever, but she could do better. Jane is not performing to the best of her ability. So I think they found me really difficult. And because I was a bit obnoxious and very <laughs> extroverted and colourful, and I used to go through phases of dressing up or, you know, trying to, I don't know, be a mod and then be a, all these different things that were a hippie and a this and a that. So I, just, <laughs> I was terrible and didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> so, so they, well, they did actually. So, I, but I didn't, like I had no motivation at that time about university or anything like that. And um, I just wanted to travel. And so when I uh, finished school, or I, I sort of had convinced my parents to let me go and do an exchange student year. So I went and did a, a year in Scotland, actually, um, at Gordonston, which is the school that Prince Charles and Prince Andrew went to. So that was an interesting experience. Um, and I was a bit of a rebel there as well. But while I was away, my mother enrolled me into university, into social work, because she thought that would be a nice occupation for me. Um, and so that's how I never chose to do social work. It's just she did it. And then when I came back, it was easier than arguing just to go and do it. So that's what happened. I never, I never got any real drive and motivation till after I'd finished my first degree um and got some life experience and then I realized you know that you've really got to be focused and driven to succeed yeah that's interesting like I'm surprised that your mom would enroll you into social work out of everything because I know like in Asian culture it's like be a doctor you know be an engineer be those sort of like higher making but in social work you don't generally think that like oh you know, in terms of like money making. I think, look, I think my mother had this idea. She was very misguided, but I think she had this idea that I, I could be a social worker and marry a nice doctor or engineer. Oh. Um, that, you see, that's the way she was thinking about it. And, you know, be, you know, I'm very kind and compassionate and I'm always good with people. And she thought, well, that'd be a nice job for a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, yeah, that's anyway, so funny. none of that happened, but that's the way she was thinking. Yeah, kind of interesting. Um, also, one quick thing about your childhood. I think like when I'm like, especially when I was in primary school and high school, all I wanted to do was like fit in. Um, but like I was kind of wondering like why that wasn't something that you maybe sort of actively strived towards at that time. No, I was no good at fitting in. And <laughs> and look, mostly I sometimes I wished I had a group of friends because I really you know, I only ever had one or two friends. I never was really in a group. But then I'd try and be in a group and I thought they were all so puerile and ridiculous that I didn't want to be part of it. So I, I kind of wanted to be, but whenever I got together with others, I just thought, oh, they're idiots. I don't want to be with them. So I was, yeah, I guess I was, a, you know, I marched to the beat of my own drum. Yeah, yeah, but I kind of sort of love that, like you sort of had this confidence from a young age. But it seems like you were forced to, right? If you don't fit in and you try, then what else can you do but be yourself? Yeah. Yeah. And at the time, so when your mum enrolled you into social work, were you like a little bit angry or like, mum, why should you do that without my permission? Or, you know, what was that? No, no, that's, that's the sort of thing my mum did. And I went, oh, yeah, mum's enrolled me in uni. All right, I'll go back and do it. 
it was just easier than arguing with it. And I didn't have, look, I didn't have any other burning thing that I wanted to do. Um, and, and as it turned out, uni was super fun. And I was a party girl at uni and social work was not a challenging degree. So, you know, I actually did really well in the degree. And I, I was called up when they were doing a review of the course as a representative of people who never attended anything to talk to them, even though I did very well. Um, yeah, I just I just passed those four years at uni having a marvellous time and going to parties. And I didn't really notice much about my social work degree, to be honest with you. Oh, that is so funny, right? Yeah. Do you think that you really um, got anything from those four years other than like the social life part? Did you get anything from... You know what um, I, I, I do? I do, because one of the things that, you know, social work's all about dealing with people, about picking up on body language, on cues, on listening, on trying to understand, you know, what's at the root of, of people, uh, what they're talking about and what their issues are. And I think that, I actually think that's an incredibly useful skill that I was able to further, I mean, I think I'm pretty intuitive about people anyway, but I think it actually did really give me some incredibly good people skills that have been very useful to me, you know, right through the rest of my life. Ah, yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then so once you finished the Bachelor, like, had a, had a blast, what was running through your mind and why go for further education? Well, I didn't, you see. So I, I always wanted to travel. And while I was um, at uni, I managed to scrape up a few pennies and went to Thailand and, and uh, Malaysia and Singapore. And I just wanted to go again. So I applied while I was finishing my degree to Australian Volunteers Abroad. And I managed to get um, an assignment with them. And I went to Indonesia. That was my first job. So I went to Indonesia and, and that was a, you know, that was a really good learning experience for, from a lot of points of view, because, you know, I think we just have this idea that, you know, we want to go and help poor people somewhere, or at least I had that idea, but yeah. you don't realise how patronising and, you know, ignorant you are before you go, because why would, you know, a, a 21 year old Australian who's really got no work experience have anything to offer so you know I think it was a very humbling experience it was also challenging because as a volunteer you live you know with a family um, and I lived in a kampung setting and it was a very big extended family and um, you know kind of learning different cultures and language and you know the work the work setting turned out to be something quite different than what I expected so there was lots of challenges and and I realised that I could only pursue an international career. And as I said to you, travelling was always number one for me if I had some real skills and I needed to get an advanced education. So, so briefly, I um, came back to Australia and I got a job for a year to save. So that's the only time I ever worked as a social worker. I worked as a social worker in a haematology oncology unit and I saved all my money. But I also learned uh, like a really amazing life lesson because in haematology oncology units, that's where you have people with leukemia and lymphoma and a lot of them don't make it. So you spend a lot of time with people, you know, who are at the end of their life unexpectedly. And I think that, you know, what I really learned was about what matters 
because we spend a lot of time, you know, worrying about stupid things. But when you're lying on your deathbed, you're not thinking about whether you were the CEO or the president or whether you had a yacht. You know, you're thinking about missed opportunities that you really wanted to do and the people who love you and having them around you. And so I really vowed at that time to sort of live every day as if it would be your last and never forego an opportunity. If it came in front of me and I could do it and I wanted to do it, to take it. Because that probably more than anything other than, you know, maybe people having fallen out with their loved ones was they were dreaming of this big overseas trip they were going to take and then suddenly got um, leukemia and weren't ever going to take it. And it's sort of like, take every opportunity now because you don't know how much time you've got. So I've always lived my life like that. So if someone said to me, hey, Jane, look, sorry, you're, you know, you're going to be dead next week, that I'd go, well, I'm, I'm really disappointed about that, but I've had the best life. Like I've done everything that I could do. I've followed every pathway and I'm really happy with the life I had. Yeah, yeah, that's really beautiful. Yeah, sort of like living every day, like it's your last and dying with no regrets. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and then so after when you finished work over there, you know, how did you decide what you wanted to study for your master's? Well, I didn't. I mean, you know, life, uh, I, I think people, <laughs> the way people are taught now, which is you need to have goals and you need to have this and that yeah. and the other things. My life is not like that. Life happens to you. And if you open yourself up to life and people now say open yourself up to the universe, it comes to you. So what I did was I just wrote, because I had no no real work experience. I had one year as a social worker and that's not really relevant to anything. So I just basically applied for all the master's courses that I could find, <laughs> agriculture, education, health, anything that I thought was vaguely relevant. And I got into master's of public health. So that's why I did master's of public health. It actually wasn't a burning fascination with health. <laughs> but having said that, once I started, I loved it. That was, that was a sort of first time in my life where you know, I really applied myself to learning and growing and developing. The topic was fascinating, that people were really interesting. And it's like I took off when I did my master's. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, okay. And then so after doing your master's, what kind of, um, what was your next step? What kind of well, work did you fall in? I needed to get a job. So, all right. no, so <laughs> my master's was one year coursework and one year field work. And I really, oh, I, I really, I'd saved up enough money to do the coursework and I really didn't have much money left. So, <laughs> so I actually, um, I was applying for jobs and I got offered a job uh, by Lutheran World Service in South Sudan, which was like pretty far away and in a place called Malakal and uh, on an integrated community development project. And then they rang me up and they said, oh, look, we're really sorry. They, I don't, they said, but there's been a big flood and the house you were going to live in has been washed away oh. and there's nowhere else for you to live in that town. So I said, well, you know, what, what are the alternatives? And they said, well, there's a, a sub base 10 hours up the river by boat. You could go there. And I was just going, what? I, I already think Malakal's at the end of the earth. And I said, are there any other expatriates there? And they said, yes, there's an Irish community development officer. And I just went, okay, no, thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> and then I picked, up, I picked up the phone and I rang a friend of mine and I knew she was going to the Papua New Guinea Institute of Medical Research. 
and it was literally 16th of December. And, I, and I, no, it was, it was the 7th of December. And I said, Julia, what date are you going to New Guinea? And she said, oh, 16th of December. And I said, what flight? She said, PX96. And I said, okay, I'm coming too. And I literally booked myself on the flight, turned up with her at the Institute of Medical Research because I knew she was going, you know, to do field work in the middle of the jungle. And I just figured I could, you know, get a topic and do my research there and tag along. And I just turned up at the Institute of Medical Research and said, hello, <laughs> I'm Jane and I want to go to the field with Julia. Is that okay? So that's how I went to New Guinea. It was pretty accidental. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> Yeah, wait, so did you actually just like not think about anything? Like, did you have that moment of like, you know, when you're like, oh, I'm going to buy the flight and then you buy it and then you have that like, oh, damn moment, like, what have I done? Did you have that or was it just like fearless? No, I just, I was just going, you know, I was determined to finish this degree and I was determined to find a field site that I could go to. And I mean, you know, this friend of mine was going, so I wasn't alone and I just went, okay, this is me. I'm off. And it was amazing. It was incredible. Um, and, you know, we we were, well, actually my friend ended up not coming. She went home because her father was sick. And so I went to the field um, without her. But, you know, we were literally living with primitive tribes in their houses and kind of living and understanding their lives and and doing our medical research work. And we had to walk from village to village. There's no phones, no electricity, no roads, no nothing. It's just fly in. And, um, you know, in one of the places I did a patrol where they'd never seen white women before and they'd only ever seen white men 15 years on the last patrol. And so they really had had virtually no contact with the outside world. So to, it's an incredible privilege to have that experience. And so that was just amazing. And I'll, <clears throat> I'll always remember that. It was incredible. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Did they almost have like a weird fascination with you because they have never seen a white woman? How's that? Oh, yeah, like no, they watched us all the time. Your... They followed her. Yep, everything. They followed <laughs> us. They watched us. They peered in the windows. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely fascinating, fascinated, and and a little bit scared because oh. we were like you know mythical creatures in a way. Many of them had never seen white people. Oh, that's interesting. And I guess like from your end, did you also have the same fascination towards them? So it was like kind of mutual fascination or no, not really? Oh, well, it was sort of, like, you know, like a field anthropology live. You know, yeah. you're, you're doing this thing. You're learning about them, what they do, what they think, how they react. It was, yeah, absolutely fascinating. Oh, that's cool. And just wondering, at the time when you landed, was it hard to convince them to let you tag along or not really? because <laughs> no. I kind of imagine, like, you're like oh you know I don't have like a place to stay and like I haven't figured anything out I just followed my friend like I'm like that person would be like what <laughs> yeah I know but uh, the guy who was the head of the institute was a really cool guy and they would they were sending a charter anyway so if there was one more it was like a charter flight in because there's no roads and no commercial oh. flights so yeah. it didn't really make much difference if there's one more person on maybe a few more you know because we took some you know tin meat and tin fish with us yeah. to eat because we'd have to get you know the local people to help us get um 
greens and vegetables and things to cook and get them to help us cook. So it, it really, I mean, he was very open-minded and um, I quickly came up with a topic. So it was, it was fine. <laughs> wow. Did you ever consider the possibility that like they would turn you back and you would be sort of like, oh, you're stuck in this random place. Did like the possibility of like failure, it not working out sort of come across your mind? Not really, not really. <laughs> Ignorance <laughs> is bliss. No, it's like, why, why worry about that? You know, I went, it all yeah. worked out. I'm a big believer in having faith that things will work out. And But as long as you're, it's not necessarily the way you expected it, but as long as you're open to whatever comes your way, then, you know, it, amazing things can happen. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and then so you finished it up in Papua New Guinea and then sort of what kind of happened next? What was your next step? So then I I started trying to enrol in a PhD because, again, it was the I didn't really have any good work experience. So I was up in New Guinea and then I started trying to enrol in a PhD and I saw this job advertised in the paper and it was the project manager of an Asian Development Bank Rural Health Services project. It was a $20 million project. And it was sort of like so far beyond my reach. But it was for me, it was the dream job that I would just have loved to have had. And anyway, so I applied for it. And then to my surprise, I actually got an interview. And then to my greater surprise, I actually got the job. <laughs> so, wow. I mean, there was a, there was a, a story behind that. But anyway, but it's sort of like there I was, 24, got a job running this $20 million program, and it was incredible. So I just did a really good job. And so there was a lot of people who wanted me to fail, a lot of people who hadn't wanted me to be appointed, and a lot of people who doubted, you know, whether I had the ability. And I just did a really good job. And then, like, everything comes from there but in the course of my work um at one point we would we had to do some you know research studies and so I had the idea that I could do the research studies and then use the research for my PhD which I wasn't enrolled in but I still wanted to do so I basically was lucky enough um I I mean I knew the professor from University of Queensland because he was a big PNG person as well and I spoke to him and he agreed to take me on so I had the data before I finished work and then I um, you know I went then I had a baby then and then I took a job at the university in PNG which allowed me to write up my thesis manage my baby and um, you know Finish, finish the PhD and do some teaching at the same time. So it all worked out really well. Yeah, oh, that's kind of crazy. And why were you so set on doing a PhD? Like, you know, you could have, you know, just gone out, made money. Well, I think it was two things. I think one thing was just, you know, it's, it's an accomplishment that I knew I could do and I kind of wanted to do just to do it. Um, <laughs> and then, but the other one is honestly, because there's such a culture in healthcare. So remember, then I, I had come into healthcare um, and everyone's just sort of like, oh, doctor, doctor, doctor. doctor. Uh. And so if you're not a doctor, you're kind of a bit out of it. So I thought, well, 
if I do a PhD, they can call me doctor too, so I can kind of be in the secret doctor handshake club. So I thought it was quite handy from that point of view. Uh, yeah, true. Like, I guess in, point, um, in terms of credibility, <laughs> it really elevates yeah. your status. Now, yeah. And then like, when I came back, uh, a while later when I came back and I, was, I actually ran a hospital, it was really important. You know, there's there's a level of respect that you get from the doctors if you're a doctor, even if it is a PhD doctor. It really mattered. Yeah. And also just wondering, because you said at the time you had a child, how was it balancing, like, all those different things at once? Well, it was perfect in P&G, you see, because, I mean, they, they're very pro-breastfeeding and they even have, like, breastfeeding policy at work. So wow. um, breastfeeding mothers can have breastfeeding breaks and things. And so... Yeah. I took my son to work uh, pretty much until he was about two years old. And I had a, like a local girl who looked after him. So I would feed him. Then she'd take him for a bit of a ride in the pram and bring him back for a sleep. So he was basically with me for the first two years of his life. And, and Papua New Guineans love children and (laughs) people are okay about that. Uh, Yeah. That's so interesting. Cause I think a lot of people, like if they were having children, they would have, a second guess on whether or not they want to pursue like PhD they might go for you know start trying to make money early or something like that but yeah it seems like it worked out quite nicely for you <laughs> yeah no it was no it was it worked out really well yeah cool and then so once you um completed your PhD um where did you go straight into so then I went I moved to Manila to the Asian Development Bank uh, so the projects that I'd been working on in PNG were Asian Development Bank projects, and then I got a job in bank headquarters. So I went to Manila for three years and worked at the ADB, which was, um, you know, again, it was I loved I loved the experience, I loved the ADB, I loved the multinational work, um, but it, it I didn't in the end think it was a good place for my son to grow up, and uh, I decided. Um, that I wanted to go back to Australia so that he would, because, you know, they lose their cultural identity. Kids of international workers often don't really fit anywhere. And I just thought, oh, maybe I'm being unfair. I should go back to Australia so he can, he was just start a primary school so he could kind of acculturate. And and then I was pregnant with my daughter and I thought, yeah, well, maybe I should go back and and get some roots in Australia so they can both grow up there. And so um, I went back and I, I just went, well, I'll get the first job that I can get because I know I need to go. So I got a job as director of women's health in Queensland. Um, and, you know, I arrived, actually, this is quite a good story. <laughs> I, I arrived about six weeks before my daughter was born. And uh, I told them that I wanted to come back to work, you know, 10 days after the baby and, and breastfeed. And I had a very uncomfortable phone call from the human resources person and it's a fellow and he's ringing me up and he's going, oh, you know, I understand you're going to have a baby. And I said, yes. And he said, and I understand you want to come back to work after 10 days. And I said, yes. And he said, and I understand you want to breastfeed. (laughs) And I said, yes. And he's going, oh, we don't really have any facilities for breastfeeding. And I said, well, I've got a breast and I've got a chair, so I think I'm pretty right. And he's going, "Mm, yes, you've got an office, you can shut the door. And I thought, no. So this poor child, 
I used to cart her around everywhere, breastfeeding her in meetings and anywhere else, just to kind of make a point. I was director of women's health and they didn't think breastfeeding your baby was okay. So, yeah. So they, And then that job got, uh, they, they had a restructure and that unit was, um, you know, sort of dismantled. And then they asked me if I'd go to the children's hospital um, which was a pretty big shock for me because I'd never run a hospital. But I, um, I said, well, you know, is there someone I can talk to? Because this is a senior cabinet level appointment. So they gave me a woman that I could call in confidence. And I told her and uh, she was a bit surprised, but she said, look, whatever you do, you can't make it worse. It's an utter mess. And I thought, OK, well, I'm going. And so <laughs> I did. And uh, so I ran the children's hospital for... Uh, three years it was a pretty amazing experience and I learned a lot um yeah yeah that's pretty cool and then so you had like a sort of very sort of stable career in the health and in like the sort of government sectors so I was kind of wondering like what sort of made you you know create your own startup so what was that sort of transition so yeah okay so but so I'm a build it fix it person so what happened was (laughs) at the hospital Basically, you know, I kind of got in and fixed the things that needed to be fixed and I got a new structure. I got money for their uh, capital works project that they wanted to do. And it was sort of like, okay, now what am I going to do? So I I need to keep on moving and have a new challenge. So I, um, I actually got called to be a commissioner on the Commission of Inquiry into Child Abuse in Queensland Institutions. So I took leave from the hospital to be a commissioner. Um, And then at the end of the commission, I was figuring out what to do. And I had some, you know, big government job offers lined up. And then uh, I saw an ad in the paper for a rural health project in PNG, a tender. And I thought, oh, I would love to do that. I, I really would know how to do that. And so I rang a friend of mine who was a doctor and I said, hey, Maxine, have you seen this ad? Why don't we do that? And she goes, okay. So then I rang up all these different, but I couldn't put in a $50 million tender. I had no track record and no company. So I rang up the the contractors who would bid on that. And I said, look, I'll put together the team. I'll lead the program. I'll win the bid for you, but I don't want to... um, subcontract with you I want to be a joint venture because I didn't really trust all of those firms to be honest and anyway so the ones that I went with so they go okay have you got a company and I go of course I've got a company and then go out and go hello I need a company how do I get a company so I set up a company in about five minutes to do this tender and so that's literally how I started up was you know doing the tender and then you know, we did that, we won it, it went really well. And then I thought, this is great. And then someone said, oh, there's something coming up in Samoa. And I said, oh, yes, Samoa looks good. Let's go there. And (laughs) it was good. Let's go there. So, you know, in the beginning, I was really just pursuing the work that I really loved doing and the company kind of grew behind me. So it wasn't quite the same as most people's startup experience. It just kind of happened and flew along yeah you know you're you're accountable 
whatever assets you've got are backing it, you need to find the money. I mean, it's a lot of stress and responsibility to be a founder and I shouldn't, you know, make fun of that. But, and maybe it's because it was a long time ago. I remember less the stress, but yeah, yeah, just, yeah, I, yeah, I had some hard times. I made some mistakes. I had some partners that I had to separate from. I probably every startup mistake, I made it. Yeah. Yeah. And what was the sort of, um, process of like growing it and how do you what was your sort of kind of maybe leadership style oh look I think so I'm people trust me you know because I'm very honest and very and uh you know and I if I tell people I'm going to do something I do that if I've made a mistake I tell them I made a mistake so um, you know, so that's one thing I think, you know, I'm the sort of leader that people trust. I think too, you know, I always had a vision somewhere we were going, something that we were doing, something that, you know, would make people exciting, excited about, you know, the next venture and so forth. So, you know, I think I was good at, you know, setting the vision, having people who trusted me and, you know, kind of taking them along and, you know, very much empowering them to kind of be part of it. We were all, people used to say my company was very much like a family. And I think that's how I thought of it. You know, every, I knew everyone who worked for me and, um, you know, I thought of them as a family and, and they thought in a way as being part of a family, I think. I mean, probably at the end, in fairness, after I sold, and we got that much bigger. It wasn't quite like that because we yeah. were part of a big corporate. Um, but up until that time, it was very much a family thing and very much incredible loyalty. People were with me for decades. They, they, they never would leave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a pretty good thing. Did you have any sort of like imposter syndrome when you were running the company as CEO? Yeah, always. Always. Yeah. <laughs> how did this happen and then people are talking to you and you go oh do they really know that I don't actually know anything but yeah all the time but you know it's uh I think it's I mean I I always have a lot of confidence but you just have to lead um and act like you know what you're doing and then hopefully you'll figure it out (laughs) yeah that's pretty good attitude figure it out as you go (laughs) Um, yeah, no, I'm a, I, I've been accused and I am of being a ready, fire, aim person. Yeah. So I fire first and then I figure out the aim. I don't wait. I just do. Oh, I guess it has its pluses and minuses. And then I guess um, just wondering, how did you um, decide when you wanted to exit the company and when you want to like sell and merge? Point in time? Oh, look, I've been... I, I'd sort of been tired of it, you know, because as I said, I like change. I like new things. Yeah. Um, and I'd been, and the the bigger it got and the, you know, obviously the further I was away from the work that I loved, which was why I started it. So, you know, as time went on in a way, even though people thought it was amazing, I was head of this company that I'd grown. I was less happy because I wasn't doing the work that I loved. So I, you know, I had, people reporting to me and they had people reporting to them and I wasn't running the projects. And so, you know, for some time I'd been a bit, um, you know, just not really enjoying it, but I wasn't quite sure, you know, when it's your own company, it's really hard. You can't just 
go to bed and say, I'm not going to do it anymore because you've got hundreds of people who uh, rely on you for their income. So what I actually did, uh, my daughter ended up going to school in Switzerland for the last three years of her um, schooling. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to go base myself out of Switzerland. And so I actually got a job with WHO for three years, but it was, I mean, it sort of worked out really well because it wasn't a full-time job. So I just, when she was at school, I was there. And when she was at home, I was at home. And I basically, um, you know, gave the people in the company um, more responsibility and I appointed a CEO. So my number two was the CEO, but I still, you know, did a lot of the leadership and the, you know, the running of it, but more, more like, I suppose, a, you know, a board member than a CEO for three years. Yeah. Um, and yeah. during that three years, uh, I was approached by, you know, someone who brokers sales and so forth. And uh, he said, would you like to sell your company? I, I'm, you know, going to the US and there's a lot of interest in buying Australian companies. And I said, well, not really, but if you meet someone that you think, you know, is aligned with my values, because values are incredibly important to me, then I'll meet them because I couldn't sell the company if I couldn't look the staff in the face and say, this is a better deal for you. Anyway, so the short story is um, that <clears throat> uh, I met this company called Apt Associates and they were a fantastic company, big American group, but very, very, it's a mission-led company, very strong values, very similar to mine. And they had nothing in Asia Pacific and we were able to kind of fill their global footprint. And so um, we merged with them and they asked me to stay on for four years as CEO, which to sort of grow Asia Pacific and kind of stabilize the whole thing. And I did that. And then I left after that. Oh, damn. And how, and what was that moment when you left? Was it a big relief or was it a like sort of hole in the heart? No, no, because I like mentally I'd already left because yeah. I'd fallen in block in love with blockchain. I left yeah. 2018. I fell in love with blockchain in 2016 and I'd been progressively, you know, mentally moving into the technology space and thinking about that. I tried to kind of get the company to come along as well, but it just wasn't really in their core business and, and I wasn't able to do that. And so, um, no, I was really, I was ready to leave. I'd, I'd done my job. I'd grown the company. I left a really good executive team in place. And it was just, you know, that chapter of my life was finished. So I was very excited to move on. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And can you tell my audience how you fell into blockchain? Because they will love it. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to your son for getting it all started. <laughs> yeah. So, but this was back in 2010. My son yeah. came to me one day and he said, hey, mum, they've invented this digital currency called Bitcoin. You should buy some. And he sort of threw a brochure at me. And at that point, it was about 10 cents. And I, you know, I just didn't. And um, then he came back to me in 2016 and he said hey mom remember when I told you to buy bitcoin and I said yeah and he said well it's now I think it was three thousand dollars by then and he said you should have bought some and he <laughs> said well now listen to me blockchain is the platform that bitcoin is built on and it's going to change everything and you need to learn about that so listen to me this time so <laughs> I was a bit sheepish and so I started reading about it and trying to understand about it 
And uh, it took me quite a while because it's really complicated. Uh, and it's very counterintuitive to everything that you've grown up with because we've grown up with centralized systems and centralized governance. And so to sort of understand decentralization, it really crushes your brain a bit. Anyway, but one day I had my eureka moment when I was for, I don't know what particular reason, but I started thinking about the um, Banda Aceh Boxing Day tsunami when 200,000 people were lost to sea during the tsunami. And my company had gone up and worked on the reconstruction of the health sector. So I'd been up there and I'd sort of seen and understood the tragedy. And I just had this moment because it wasn't just that the people were lost. No one knew who was lost and who was still surviving. The bank records were gone. The health records were gone. The land records were gone. And then donors started coming in. No one knew if the money and the goods were getting to the right people and people traffickers came in. Like everything that you can imagine about a humanitarian disaster was there. And I just had this, but if everyone had a secure biometric identity secured on the blockchain that you could kind of reconnect with and the land records and the health records and all of the other records yeah. were there, like it wouldn't have stopped the tragedy, but it would have made the the reconstruction and, and, you know, the sort of coming back so much easier. And, and, and I just saw what it could do in a humanitarian setting. And I thought, I, look, I have, to, I have to do this. I have to promote this. I have to learn about it. I have to, you know, help people trial it out so that we can see that happen at scale. So we have a way to better deal with these sorts of events. Yeah, that's interesting. And did you ever like think why you like, why should you be the one to do it? Like, you know, like there are other people that could have because I guess like at that time, I feel like I'm like really admiring your sort of courage from like zero to nothing, like from zero to like everything. Did you have that sort of like self-doubt or anything like that? No, <laughs> I just what? went. I just put myself out into the stratosphere and I went. Um, I mean, I'm, and I'm not saying it was without challenge or that yeah. you know, it, it was and people people found me a bit weird you know <laughs> who is this woman who's just coming to all these blockchain conferences and talking about social impact and who does she work for yeah and like, well, no one <laughs> uh, but but I guess you know the one thing that did happen to me that really kept me going because it was it was sort of weird and that's why in the end I I I bought this um, blockchain and fintech events company in London, which unfortunately went under during the pandemic, but never mind about that. But, but I started writing because once I had sort of got my head around what this was, then I felt I need to write so people can read and they can go, oh, that's why it's relevant for financial inclusion. That's why it's relevant for healthcare, et cetera. So I started um, posting stuff on LinkedIn and I was really amazed. I got all these followers and people just started like, they like reading my stuff. So then I wrote more stuff. And so, yeah. you know, I got a big, I realized that there was a lot of people out there and I was one of the early people talking about blockchain and social impact. There was no one talking about it when I started. There's a lot of people now yeah. and people were looking for somewhere to go. People who cared about the planet, who cared about technology, who wanted to, you know, create a, a better place. And a lot of them started connecting with me on LinkedIn. So I felt like, you know, 
had somehow taken a, a leadership role, which is a strange thing with technology is you don't have to be the head of a corporation. You don't have to be a president of a country to lead a community. You just have beliefs and you write about them and people resonate with what you say, then they follow you now. That's the big difference. This whole kind of influencer world that we live in really changes the balance of power in a way as to who can talk to people and who can get yeah. messages to people. Yeah, and just wondering, from your son's perspective, does he find this whole thing kind of hilarious that, like, wow, you know, you blew up into the blockchain and now your face is, like, all over blockchain? Yeah, and did he get back into the blockchain? Like, has he, is he as active no, as well, he? No, he, he, um, he's cross with me for not buying Bitcoin. But um, he, no, he, he because he ran startup accelerators and co-working spaces. So yeah. he was very much in the startup space. Um, and, you know, it, it was great because he understood what I was doing and my daughter ended up working in blockchain. So we're a bit of a blockchain family, which is really great. Um, yeah, although he's in private equity now, but, you know, he gets what I'm doing and he's interested when, you know, I send him new things. So it's it's actually, you know, really fabulous. Ah, uh-huh. yeah, that's kind of cool. And, yeah, I realise that, you know, you nearly have to go. So just a few more quick questions. Yeah. One is, so in your, um, so in your opinion, what do you think the meaning of life is for you? <laughs> just throw it in there. <laughs> No, look, I don't, I don't, I think, honestly, I think that the only thing that we can really do that has any meaning in this life is to, to procreate. I think that's our job. And so (laughs) I think you live through, I mean, it's, you know, you do things, but I think having family and having children and, and sort of, you know, bringing them up to be good people and putting them out into the planet is the most important thing that you can do. I mean, you know, I think in terms of work, I think it's just like using the skills and talents that you've got to have the best impact that you can. I'm always about impact. You know, how can I use whatever I've got, my voice, my writing, you know, my intellect to do something that's really going to matter? So that's how I, I you know, I try and do things. But, you know, number one, family. And number two, just do something that makes a difference to someone and that matters. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and I guess when you're like sort of teaching your children, what are like some of the key areas that you sort of really drill into them as like a person? I don't think I don't think I was much of a driller. They they laugh at me a lot. I I think I try and teach them good values. That's the most important thing. But you know, I think it's just I don't I I just want them to be happy with what they're doing to find something that gives them meaning and purpose and, you know, to lead a good life. But I'm not driven for them to succeed at anything or anything like that. You know, you create your own pathway and we all have to find our own. And obviously I'm there to help them if they fall over and, um, but they have to shape their own future. I don't think it's my business to be telling them. Oh, that's pretty good. A hands-off (laughs) mum. Yeah. And so the final question is, Jane, what do you think your perfect day in the life is for you? Perfect what? Perfect day in the life for you. Perfect day in the life. Yeah, what time do you wake oh, up? Oh, i tell you what, since I got out of Australia, I'm having a lot of perfect days. <laughs> uh, you know, but just honestly, um, I get up every morning, I go for a walk, I meet exciting people, I'm working on lots of different amazing projects. 
I can get on a plane and fly different places from here, unlike Australia, which is locked in. Um, and my daughter's here. My only uh, sadness is that Australia is still locked, so I can't go see my son. Yeah. But yeah, it's pretty perfect when you're working on incredible world-changing projects with really interesting people and, uh, you know, your family are close, thank goodness for Zoom. Yeah. And get on a plane. I love travelling. I've been to Oman and Egypt and Spain Ooh, in the last two months since I've been cool. here. So I am not locked in. Yeah. I reject being locked in. Yeah, that's cool. So say if you theoretically like won the lottery tomorrow and then all your financial problems were gone, would you change anything about your life really? I'd probably stay in a fancier hotel, but no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, fair enough. That's all the questions I have to have today. I'm super, super grateful for your time, Jane. And it was really great chatting. Oh, thank you. It's been such a pleasure <laughs> and lovely to meet you. Yeah, lovely to meet you virtually. I wish this was in person, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. One day okay. when the borders open. Bye. Oh, sounds good. Bye.